will simply be wiped off the map one way or another. Preferably they'll starve to death or die of plague. That way you can't really blame the authorities. The authorities will put their hands up and say, we couldn't feed you all. And that's all starting to come forth now, the drumbeat starting to roll with the propaganda, getting us ready for this. And those who can't fit in to the new system by any method at all will simply be eliminated. And this was the mantra of Charles Darwin. It was also the mantra of his grandson. And uh, he printed a book called The Next Million Years, Charles Dalton Darwin, where he laid out what he saw as the agenda for the future. I'll be back with more of this after the following messages. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix trying to get it across to people that nothing spontaneously happens in the system. On the contrary, everything is debated at very high levels. Every little tiniest change in culture or direction in anything to do with the public is heavily debated and drafted up and gone over and redebated and all the rest of it until it's perfected and then it's implemented upon the public. And many years ago, uh, they started to implement a plan for depopulation. And part of it, too, based on the eugenics of Darwinism, was also to start getting rid of the medical treatment that was available to the public, starting at the bottom level. And the way to do it is always the, the typical way that they come at this. They come at from an opposite direction. They give you and they make you pay for the big institutions are called hospitals and medical care. Then they privatize it down the road and then they build up associations of doctors and so on for boards. Then the, the board members start dictating policy and lobbying government and the government's only too happy to agree because they both have, uh, they're both traveling the same road, basically, the agenda. And in the 70s in Britain, uh, the National Health Service that was set up after a lot of fighting and uh, wait by the public to get it going, and that was working pretty well at the time, and suddenly it was started to semi-privatize in some areas, and they brought in an American system called the Salmon Scheme, and everything went to pot because they became top-heavy with chiefs and directors and all the rest of it, and started to cost-cut in all the wrong places. But then they started to tag patients according to their value to society and in intensive care uh, they started to put down who would be resuscitated and who would not and it literally went by your standing the Masonic term standing in the community the pillar stands up you see those who are dead walk you know that you're lying around that's the, that's the terminology they use such a good standing in the community and you're important to the system you would be resuscitated over someone else if you both had coroners at the same time and that spread all through the British Commonwealth countries and including Canada but now they're going to step further and Canada loves to give to the world and it's had very good propaganda that we're some sort of quiet, nice, well-behaved country that's not involved in world affairs and we'll have to help people around the world 
and we had tremendous parades and so on to of politicians boasting how we were not involved with this great war in the Middle East, even though most of the support ships and troops and all the rest of it that went into the Gulf were Canadian, and we've been heavily supporting it. A good part of the industry, in fact, supports it. They make the weaponry that's being used in the Middle East. But apart from that, and apart from the fact that Canada, uh, for many years, ruled the world for the creation of bacterial warfare um, viruses and bacterium, um, and kept that fairly quiet too from the public. We're also ahead when it comes to all the great changes in society, all the various changes that are destroying the, all that was. I mean, the old system of living, male, female, everything has been changed. Even parents have changed. Even relationships of children to parent, parents, whatever, has all changed. The state literally is giving the values to the children in a very dogmatic way. It's a very prejudiced system within the school system, believe you me. But here's the next step they've gone to, and that is to do... And this is from the Jerusalem Post, by the way. You have to go across the world often to find out what's happening in your own country. We get a lot of stuff that's about the U.S. that's not printed in the U.S. And in Canada, you have to go up across the planet to find out what's happening here. That's how the news is run. This is from the Jerusalem Post on March the 4th, 2008 updated in March the 5th, 2008, Brazen New World, it's called Brazen New World, by Abby Shafran. And it says, asked by the New York Times in 2005, but today taken for granted idea or value he thinks may disappear in the next 35 years, Professor Peter Singer, the professor of bioethics, now that's, that's basically the eugenics, they call it bioethics now, to make it sound less, less Hitler, Nazi regime at Princeton University's Center for Human Values. I love how they put the word at human values, eugenic society, responded. The traditional view of the sanctity of life, of human life at will, explained collapse under pressure from scientific, technological, and demographic developments. This past January the 30th, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Manitoba, Canada, issued a policy statement that may come to permit professor to add the word profit to his curriculum vitae. In that document, the government body of the Canadian province's medical profession, this notice that the body of the Canadian province's medical profession, made up of doctors, directs that doctors have the final say with regard to ending life-sustaining treatment of patients, regardless of the wishes or religious beliefs of the families or their family, uh, of the patients or their families. It also establishes a baseline for justifying life-sustaining treatment, including a patient's ability to experience his or her own existence. Now, lawyers can play with that. Below which a doctor is directed to end life-sustaining treatment, regardless of the wishes of the patient's family. The new policy paper has garnered much attention and may well have ramifications throughout Canada and conceivably elsewhere. Well, yeah, of course it is. They start it somewhere, and it just takes off like welfare. Underlying the document, saturating it, actually, is the premise that ending a human life is a medical decision, not a moral one. Or, alternately, that medical training somehow confers the ultimate moral authority to pass judgments on the worthiness of human lives. Either contention is offensive, 
a foundation of what has come to be called civilization is that people are not mere things or even animals, that human life has a special, sacred nature. Historically, the right to take steps to end the life has been regarded first and foremost as an ethical issue, not a medical one. And doctors, for all their training, are no more inherently qualified to address ethical issues than CEOs or plumbers, and that's so true, or barbers for that matter, if they still have any. As it happens, the Manitoba policy goes beyond the ethical dumbing down of life and death decision-making. It actually betrays a preference for ending patients' lives. For while it gives physicians the final say, even against the family's wishes for terminating life support, it puts the final decision literally in the family's hand when the family feels the patient should die and it is the doctor who feels otherwise. In Manitoba medicine, it seems death is a desideratum. That contention is further evident in the Manitoba policy statements of self-awareness baseline, which exemplifies the pitfalls of what might be called iatral arrogance, or put more prosaically, medical chutzpah. Last year, the prodigious, prodigious journal Science published a report on a young woman who was declared vegetative. Now, I thought Green was in. You think they'd live more. For five months, she showed no signs of awareness whatsoever. Scientists, though, decided to put her in a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner machine that tracks blood flow to different parts of the brain. And that was only developed a few years ago. I should have had it for 30. When they asked her to imagine things like playing tennis and walking through her home, the scan lit up with telltale patterns of language, movement, and navigation indistinguishable from those produced by the brains of healthy, conscious people. The report's authors, while stressing the patient may still be classified as unconscious, conclude nonetheless that she has a rich mental life. That young woman seemed entirely unaware of her environment. Only the development of a new diagnostic technology revealed active brain function. Is it unreasonable to wonder what future technologies might yet be developed that will detect other layers of human consciousness, or what layers might forever elude scientific instrumentation. And then there is the misguided assumption of medical infallibility, and isn't that so true? In Calgary last year, doctors were ready to pull the plug on Zong Wu Jin, who had suffered a brain injury after his family obtained a court order to maintain life support. Mr. Jin's condition improved markedly, and now he is doing exercises aimed at helping him walk again. More recently, doctors at Manitoba's own Grace Memorial Hospital sought to disconnect Samuel Golubchuk from the ventilator that was helping him breathe, claiming that he was unconscious and unresponsive, presumably never to recover. Golubchuk's children, Orthodox Jews, whose religious convictions opposed terminating their father's life, promptly sought and obtained a court injunction. The judge in that case recently announced that there were sufficient grounds to doubt the hospital's analysis of the patient's condition, and Golubchuk's children report that he is now alert and making purposeful movements. Now, it makes you wonder how many people they have terminated over the many years with the older methods there. When they just uh, And don't, don't kid yourself for a minute, this has nothing to do with cost factor. It's all to do with cost factor because they have... Uh, given all these incentives to directors of hospitals, they cut costs by any means possible, and these directors get rewarded for doing so. Just 
like the guys who run the banks and get a billion dollars bonuses at the end of the year. It's the same sort of thing that happens within hospitals. Big, big money and misery. And, uh, and these characters get a lot. You know, they were so inventive in Britain when they were told to cut back on hospital spending. The directors of hospitals uh, were getting their questionnaires via the Internet to uh, forthcoming patients who were booked in for surgeries and awaiting their time on the waiting list. And they even had the gall to ask these people when they were going in hospital, well, guess when they sent out the request to come in for the operation. Yeah, you got it, and they're all on holiday. Then they're back at the bottom in the waiting list. That was their problem solved. That's the sort of stuff that happened in these great institutions that we pay so much for through the nose. I'll be back with more. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix and just filling you in on some of the things that are happening. It's not happening by chance because big boards like that and directors and all the rest of it, you get permission from much higher authorities and it falls in line with all the cost-cutting measures as they declared more 50, 60 years ago. Uh, the cost of maintaining the baby boomers would be just astronomical. And apart from that, they didn't want too many people living in the future. They already had their plans to reduce the population. And, of course, they've seen it through the inoculation programs as we get sicker and sicker. And our food now is totally contaminated. And uh, they have put all those various genes in there. It's all a big secret what genes they put in vegetables and all that, why they did it. Because it's classified. It's classified. And the old saying, you are what you eat, was never so true as today. We've been under war. We've been, war has been declared upon the public, and they didn't know. They were told to be happy and just rock through the 60s and the 70s, and then wrap their way through the door to the final ending. And, and sure enough, they did. They had fun, fun, fun. Now they're pulling away all of the little rugs that were under our feet. It made us feel so good and comfy, and we're beginning to wisen up a little bit and ask what on earth has been going on. And the problem is, is it too late or is it not? It's up to the will of the people to put a stop to it, because massive, incredibly huge bureaucracies worldwide now are on the roads to utter totalitarianism, as I've never seen it in the world ever before. They never had the technology to implement every part of this and mandate your life from birth to death and track and follow you and know what you purchase, know who you talk to on a daily basis. You know, the next version of the computer that's already ready to come, will come out shortly, actually, you'll, you'll have no memory in the computer. It won't need it because all the data that you require, all the programs will be held in servers, remote servers, and all the data that therefore is shared with intelligence services directly to be more efficient for them to make sure you're not terming terrorists by your thoughts or wrong speak or wrong think and that kind of stuff. First, they give you the bait. They give you the bait, you see. It's just like putting a noose down for the rabbit. You've got to put the noose down and camouflage it and put the good bait in the middle so he goes along and he gnaws away there. 
then he's oblivious to that moose. You see? Same idea. The computer was given to us. And they made sure that even the most ignorant amongst us, myself included, uh, thought there was nothing on it but pornography. Well, that was the bait to get everybody in. All age groups, too, just flooded into that apartment. It really wasn't confined to, to young people at all. All age groups just flooded in, and, uh, and that was some hooked. You see, now they can't do without it. Even the ones who grew up where stores and all the rest of it used to do their inventories with pencil and paper, and it was no big deal. And you you rung up stuff in the, in the, the, the cash register. People could count and add and subtract in those days, too, not long ago. And, uh, and things passed through much quicker than do with these cards and the punching stuff and all the rest of it. So they keep telling us it's so much more convenient, but that's the big lie. The whole thing was to get everything computerized. And they knew they could do this 50 years ago. They knew it was coming. How did they know so certainly it was coming? Because they had advanced computers in the high military establishments back then. Not the big real-to-real stuff they saw in the old movies. That was for the lower echelons. But the high levels, they certainly did have them. And we are kept in a fake reality all through our lives with regards to high technology. We're shepherded like sheep. And the purpose of sheep, even though the shepherd seems a good shepherd, is to make you graze well, fatten up so he can eat you. He lives off you. And you clothe him too. He lives off you. That's the function of government. Not to represent the people. Charles Galton Darwin said that himself. That the system that would have to come into play would be a totalitarian government worldwide. He said it was simply a matter of pleasing the people, if that's what government was there for. He said that would be the easiest thing to do. It would also be the cheapest, actually. But he goes right forwards and tells you that government was never intended to be that. It was an elitist-guided government, always. That's been for the beginning of probably the 1800s, at least. Now we've got Don from Pennsylvania on the line. Are you there, Don? Hello? Hello, Don. Yes, Hello? go ahead. Hey, yes. how you doing tonight, Alan? Not so bad. No. Okay, hey, uh, you know, I was you know, looking over your blurb last night about culture creation, and I ran across this article about the young girl from Georgia that had autism. Did you yeah. see that, where the court settled the case with her? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, first of all, it's amazing they don't make the public that... Uh, no, they actually have a fund set up. Oh, yeah. Well, of course it makes perfect sense that they don't make it public. <laughs> but, but I also, you know, noticed within that article that uh, the father was a neurologist and, and the mother was a trained lawyer and nurse. Uh, that helps. People, that helps. Yeah, people on the lower end like myself, there's no way I would have representation to ever get that kind of settlement. No. No. And they probably had it. Yeah, they probably yeah, had very good friends too. I'll be back after these. Yeah, back after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, cutting through the matrix. This big map of reality, this more illusions and alterations in perception than anything else. The indoctrinated perceptions that are constantly updated, like computer programs, by television and media and so on. It's not what's propaganda. That's how it's done. And repetition, as Bertrand Russell says, and repetition is very important. Years ago, they talked about giving the United Nations the total power to be the world government, and they would need budgets to work upon. They're always crying, poor, poor, poor. As you go around the world, pretending to hand up chocolates, and really they're simply blowing up people all over the place and changing the whole system to standardize it, because no competition in varying cultures will be allowed in this brave new world. And from the Times colonist, this is from... Uh, I think it's British Columbia Wednesday, February the 20th 2008, Victoria, BC yeah. The Times colonist says In East Canada too, got to be a first for Canada Carbon tax puts British Columbia out in front Remember the Kyoto conference And all that hoopla uh, Here it is It says um, New revenue Revenue neutral, doesn't that sound nice? Revenue neutral, like what does that mean? Like nothing. Um, carbon tax means an increase in gas prices. These are typical double speak that only bureaucrats can come up with. Increase in gas prices of 2.41 cents a litre. We have the 3.8 gallon. Beginning July the first or July the first, rising to 7.24 cents more a litre by 2012. Well, you can probably triple that. You know how they are with their figures. Carbon tax will increase diesel and home heating oil prices by 2.76 cents a litre, effective July the 1st, rising to 8.2 cents a litre by 2012. Carbon tax will apply to virtually all fossil fuels, including gasoline, diesel, natural gas, coal, propane, and home heating fuel. Effective April the 1st, Victoria residents will also pay an extra one cent in every litre of gas to help finance the Victoria Regional Transit Commission. It says total carbon tax to bring in $1.8 billion over the next three years. That's just one province, like a state. And here's the minister in charge of it, all dressed in green with this. No, I won't even describe what she looks like. Tara said the tax is just one part of a larger strategy. This is British Columbians showed Canadians the benefits of granola, (laughs) healthy eating and aerobics. They're again leading a social movement to save the planet, she said. This is to save the planet. They're taxing you into the ground. It's to save the planet. This is an important turning point for British Columbia. We think for Canada, because we're out in front on this one. Yeah, we're always so happy to be out in front. But we had a great uh, job with all the other things we came out in front with, too. He says, um, we don't want to wait until we get a, a consensus. No, let's not do that. We think that it's important to take the first steps and just tax you. I did, I did tax you, because that's what you tack on to the end of it. And environmental groups, you know, that the funded Rockefeller-type environmental groups welcomed the carbon tax, but expressed concern that government increased subsidies to the oil and gas sector at the same time. These subsidies will climb to nearly $50 million to $327 million in 2008-9. Of course, it's a fascist system, and any moron can see that. Two steps forward, one step back, Will Horter of the Dogwood Initiative said in a National 
Democratic Party's critic Bruce Rawson ripped the budget for exempting big polluters such as oil, gas, aluminum, and cement producers from the carbon tax. They will instead be regulated through a yet-to-be-determined carbon cap and trade system. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is this is just implementation starting on this complete bogeyman called carbon pollution. Because I wonder how, when the next volcano goes off, how they're going to tax that. Or will they blame that on us too? And more probably, they will blame that on us too and say that our bad thoughts we weren't doing enough good karma. Uh, that's what caused it to erupt, you see. This is the kind of nonsense we're into in this day and age. Uh, so we'll go back to the phones, and we've got Stefan from Germany. There are you there, Stefan? Can you hear me? Hello, Stefan. Yeah, yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can just hear you. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, I wanted to say that uh, I'm very glad um, about your uh, show yesterday. I, I found that was uh, really a good show, a really good show, as yeah. always. And uh, I wanted to ask if I may um, ask some questions that are not um, actual, uh, not not uh, political. Yeah. Um, sure. In your first book, you um, you had uh, a poster of um, something that looked like a gray, and you uh, named it a troglodyte. Did I get that yeah. right? That's right. Yeah, it's a it's a pun. It's a pun on. Uh, people who existed a long time ago in the Middle East and elsewhere, uh, they were the, sometimes they call them the first great builders, and because they dug, in fact, you remember Indiana Jones, where you see in Petra, the, I think it was Petra, the area where there was a city carved in rock from rock faces. Uh, these technically were, were crocodiles that, that, you find the same in Ethiopia, where the, they built entire churches inside mountains by carving the rock away, even carving away spaces above the churches inside the mountains to act as the sky. Incredible works of not only art, but engineering. And we find traces of these troglodytes um, that had odd customs. They were tribal people. Uh, they were employed as guides by every invading army. They knew the terrain. They knew the passes through mountains and so on. And they'd always work for money. But they had an odd custom of killing their own their own people when they hit the age of 40. They would bury them up to their neck in sand and throw stones at the head until they were dead. Um, and But technically, because they lived in caves and inside mountains, uh, the Greeks called them troglodytes. And in the Middle East, some of them called them the Hurrians or Horites. Now, Hurrian also is related to the word Aryan. Aryan, that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had legends. There's a good book called uh, uh, Jewish Myths and Legends. It's put out by the University of Oxford. And they go into some of this uh, mythology, ancient history, uh, prehistory is really mythology, where they talk about uh, the troglodytes and the different peoples. And they mention that Manasseh and others... Uh, the tribe of Manasseh supposedly was given the north of Israel to the mountains, uh, interbred with the, these these cave or mountain dwellers who were almost albino. And uh, Manasseh, after about a generation, became uh, primarily blonde, uh, red-haired, blue-eyed, and very ferocious. That's what was noticed. They were very ferocious. 
uh, they often fought with their own tribes, the other tribes. And even when invaders came in, they would often give up their services and act as mercenaries and attack uh, what used to be their own peoples of Israel. So these are these are part mythologies, part truths, um, all mixed together. But there's no doubt about it. These people um, probably, and even in India, to the north of India, where the Brahmins claim they were the last, or they're, they're the remnant of the last man that came through the previous age, they also lived inside mountains in the Himalayas, and they're riddled with mountains towards the base. they riddled with caves and tunnels towards the base. Um, there's no doubt that people did live inside mountains um, thousands and thousands of years ago, and no doubt had knowledge that uh, times were changing and saved themselves. You'll also find uh, that um, the fabled Mount um, Ararat, which is now run by Turkey, um, is riddled with mountains as well. So it's not so much an ark on top, it was an ark inside. And, and those entrances are guarded by the Turkish military. And then if we jump to the writings of Tacitus, for instance, uh, he got the Druids uh, legends of three previous ages and how the elite survived by living inside hollowed mountains uh, for a long, long period of time and they were stacked with food and water and, and what they needed to survive. We also have the same with the Greek legends. That's how they claim they survived the previous age in Mount Parnassus. Um, so whether these troglodytes in the Middle East were remnants of the same peoples who are elites who had survived is up for grabs. But uh, technically that's what a troglodyte is, simply a cave dweller or a tunnel dweller uh, that comes through a previous age into a new and continues to live in that fashion. Mm. And, and why did you connect uh, the, the image of, of an alien with that? It's, uh, well, because alien is a spin on the, on the new spin. They love to bring greys and different types of uh, aliens into the, the, the New Age scenario. See, the New Age, so in other words, it's a bit of a joke. I think, though, previously, uh, the real troglodytes probably are the ones that came up through uh, previous ages with the knowledge, arrived in Sumer, maybe even created Sumer, and kept mm -hmm. histories, and that's how they could recreate an entire system of economy very quickly uh, with a whole pantheon of gods and bureaucratic priests. So I think really uh, a true grey is someone, gee, in, in esoteric language, a grey is someone between the black and the white squares on the chessboard or the, or the tesserated floor. The senate or senact is the as the, as the Egyptians called it. So as, as metaphorically speaking, a grey is the one in between two worlds or two ages. Uh, technically, a Kissinger type or technocrat today is also a grey in high Masonic parlance. Yeah. Mm. May, I, may I ask uh, another question? Yes, uh, and if the engineer can turn up the, the volume a little bit too. Oh, I, I have only that phone. I don't. I, I can't. Can you hear me? Yes, uh, yeah, but the engineer can hear us. He can turn oh, okay. it up for me. Um, you in your um, talk yesterday, you said uh, you have done your homework uh, re in regards to um, uh, to to the old times, to to what what this is all about. Um, is, do you mean the old Indian stories with the god fighting and this, or do you mean something else? It, it, it's um, the homework really is to go over the past, the, 
if you don't know the past, you, you'll never figure out what's happening. Even, even the last hundred years, most people have no idea that the big institutions that's running their lives now and, and are going to be more manifest shortly um, were set up centuries ago, some of them. Yeah, and that, and that, what their goals were and their agendas, it's very important to know their agendas. They have never ceased, you see. That is very true, I understand that, but um, the further you go in the past, the more uh, foggy it, it becomes, um, and it's hard to yeah. find uh, good information, and I thought maybe you, you, you would say... Um, what kind of information led you to, to your understanding of, of the old times? The really old. Well, what it was with me, uh, I think I had a good, a good beginning in a very poor family, which was just a normal family. I didn't know it was poor. Everyone else around me was the same. And I wondered why, if, if, if human manpower was worked out in wages, which were paid hourly into a sense, I wondered why in the great British Empire, that boasted so much of its, of its, uh, its conquests and its plunder um, had so many working people generation after generation who could not accumulate anything to even uh, have some rest for paying the rent or, or basic worries for food or so they didn't have the credit cards and so on like they have today uh, but I mean why was that why, how come the majority of the public in Britain did not own their own home for instance and could never own their own home. The majority of the public lived uh, very similar to Germany in, in social housing. Um, why would that be if, if there was this tiny elite in London that had come down through century after century uh, accumulating such incredible wealth and, and still holding on to it and, and reigning over the public? It made no sense. Then I realized that the whole system was rigged by going through newspapers from different areas within Britain and you'd find that a carpenter's apprentice, for instance, began at the same wage from north to south to east to west. It was the same. The whole system was rigged. And in the maximum pay you would have, say, as a plumber, a carpenter, a welder, would always be the same wherever you went. You had a fixed, rigged system run off by economists who, who knew darn well that the complete statistics of the average pay of the income of the average person and family their needs, their requirements, and how much they'd have left at the end after they paid it, you were kept in a deliberate state of, of uh, obedience and, and, and pretty well dependency upon that job and that system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, um, I'm, I'm totally with you on that point, no problem. But um, I, I mean some, something like religion. Um, Everybody is asking what, what is this world about. And, and, and most of the religions um, don't seem to, to get it right and um, therefore um, I think one has, as you do, has to go very, very uh, far into the past and, and uh, yeah. to, to find out and I wanted to ask about uh, sources of that kind. You have to go in uh, to the ancient religions, um, look at the system and the religion that ruled over the system, uh, you'll find we're all based on forms of slavery. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, it was always the same system where uh, the priests or the high priests would always um, back up a king or a pharaoh, royal families who inbred. It was always the same system. Even when the Catholic Church came in 
adopted so much of the old paganism to get the pagans in. They gave them so many things which were familiar, the trinities and all the rest of it, and tacked all that back onto Christianity until you had the exact same stuff as Samiram, as the mother worship, uh, and all the rest of it, Nisus worship. It's all the same stuff. Um, and they also backed up kings, queens, and rulers with interbred families. It was the same system that came down through the ages. It really simply was like a phoenix uh, uh, getting reborn every few hundred years under a different guise. Uh, so slavery was the norm, and in the Greek, the great Greek Empire and the Roman Empire ran on slavery. At one point, there was about 80% of the public uh, of uh, Rome were actually slaves. Uh, and that, um, that was, was the same. Yes, and if you go into Charles Galton Darwin's book, The Next Million Years, he said, he said that there has always existed a system of slavery, and we are in the process of creating a more perfected system of slavery. It's a scientific slavery where the public think they're free. Mm. Okay, may I ask another question? Yes. What is the, could you elaborate on the relationship between Kabbalism and Gnosticism? Between the first one is what? Kabbalism? The Kabbalah? Oh, Kabbalah. Um, well, Gnosticism, um, ancient Gnosticism began, simply meaning those who know. Uh, and it was a, a term used for a wide variety of people initially. And um, they brought in the Kabbalah eventually. The Kabbalah, as uh, Mr. Budge says, one of the first main translators of the, the Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Uh, hold on, I'll be back after these messages with more about this good topic. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, and we're coming through the Matrix talking about Gnosticism with Stephen from Germany. Now, it began, as I say, with various hermits and so on, and over centuries it developed Uh, into an esoteric understanding of things, but they also used numerology. They traced numerology all back to Chaldea. Chaldea used coding in the alphabet and coding and numbers and so on. And that was followed suit by other cultures that, that followed them down through the years. But um, much of the modern Kabbalah was invented around the 1500s, much of the latter parts of it. Uh, but the uh, earlier parts were taken simply from ancient uh, numerology uh, with the tricks with the language if you understand the numbers you understand the, the letters you put the letters together you have the words and of course they also went into all the different names of God and so on and the numbers of the names etc 72 names uh, for God and each letter was a number so when they added up each name of God separately you'd have a sacred number as well involved with the name of God It's all to do with coding, and you could also pass letters on to each other um, in code to the average person. It would mean nothing to those initiated. It would mean something. Later on, eventually, when the masses got hold of it, it became, it became distorted, perverted, because the masses love ritual and a few laws and rules. And you even had the later Gnostic groups um, ending up very much like uh, the Quakers, They separated the males from the females, believing that sex itself, intercourse, was the original sin, and they were forbidden to, to breed, basically. And so they thought they'd bring harmony in the earth by splitting the male from the female, living separate lives. Even the married ones had to separate, come together, meals only, 
and that way there'd be harmony. You'll find a, a similar thing down through the ages um, where they believed that, that evil or Satan or the Lord of the world ruled the world. That's a Greek idea as well, the Demiurgos, and it's represented to an extent with Jehovah. He's the angry type man with all his rules and laws. But in the, in the esoteric traditions, there was a higher deity above that. Uh, that was a creator. Um, the Gnostics themselves just simply degenerated into all kinds of sects. But like all religions will go, you'll get splinter groups going off into the more and more ridiculous and, and absurd uh, and ending up with always with magic and then self-worship. And that's what we have today uh, under the guise. It's really the old paganist religion when it ends up is self-worship where they believe that you yourself are a god. All you have to do is bring the godhood out of you and you purr like a cat. It's a great technique, though, for the present rulers of the world to bring in to play while they want the world to be stroking itself, each person stroking themselves and purring while they take everything uh, and every part of your freedom away from you. It's a great delusion uh, to bring people under at this particular time. So Gnosticism has always changed uh, its meanings down through the ages, one for the masses, one for the, the higher esoteric groups, and those who under, really understood in the ancient times, as I say, simply became hermits and went off to live on their own, which is probably the most sensible thing to do. Okay, mm. Stephen? Yeah? Yeah. May I ask another question? Uh, you have to be very fast, because it's mm. almost uh, a minute ago. Yeah. Okay, um, now then, I, I won't do that. Um, I wanted to ask if, um, would you like um, that I phone you up? Sometime? Uh, you, could, you, you could try sometime if you can get through. Okay. Okay. And there's there's the, the music coming in. So from Hamish myself, up in Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.